Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountains of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord almighty, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Catherine. Um, As Chris said, my name is Louise and I work here as the student worker here at Christchurch. So I know uh, lots of you and I've met lots of you in the last week or so and it's great to have you here. Um, But if I don't know you, do come and introduce yourself at the end. I would love to meet you. Shall we pray as we dive into this psalm? Lord, I thank you that you are here, that you are here in this place with us. Thank you that tonight, however uh, we come here, however we're feeling, um, that, Lord, you will meet with us, that we can rest in your presence and find home and hope uh, in you. I pray that you would speak to us tonight um, and that, yeah, we would leave this place changed um, from what we hear from you. Amen. 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 Cool. God is king. God is king. That is the unapologetic proclamation of those words of Psalm 24, that God is king. It's an encouragement for us to look beyond ourselves, out at our world, and up to our God, to take a bird's eye view of the lordship of God over all things. We're led in this psalm to see our God as our king. There are quite distinct sections in this psalm, and if you have it in front of you, um, that's great, and you'll notice it. If you don't, maybe grab a Bible or get it up on your phone. Um, You'll notice there are three quite distinct sections in this psalm. We're going to, tonight, we're going to pull out three themes uh, that surround God's kingship in this passage, uh, one from each of those sections. We're going to focus on God, our king, by looking at our king's creation. We're going to look at our king's presence and our king's return. And we're going to see how Psalm 24 speaks into each of those things. God's creation, God's presence and God's return. The king's creation, the king's presence and the king's return. So firstly, those first couple of verses, one and two, they speak of the king's creation. David writes that the earth is the Lord's, that the world is totally not up for grabs, but that it's already owned. It's not up for grabs, but it's already owned by the creator. David declares that God has complete, definite ownership over all things, 
over the world and all who live in it. David wants the reader of his psalm to understand and to celebrate that God is king over creation. Rather than putting words in bold or or highlighting them as we would, um, to place emphasis on something, uh, Hebrew writers would put it at the beginning of the sentence. So actually, um, that first sentence would have read, Lord's is the earth. Lord's is the earth. That's the important part, the Lord. The important part is that he is Lord, but also that he is the Lord. Now, I think it comes as both a comfort and a challenge that the earth is the Lord's. I think it's a comfort because as we look at the vastness of creation, which we've done over the last couple of weeks, as we look at that and as we look at the complexity and the intricacies of life, we can take refuge in the knowledge that we are not big enough, that we are not powerful enough, and that we are not intelligent enough to be in control of the earth. We're not big enough. We're not clever enough. And that's a really, really good thing. But of course, uh, it comes with a challenge. If the earth is the Lord's, then we have to change our perception of our own role in the world. We have to change how we see ourselves. Really, I think that much of humanity treats creation as if we are in charge. Or perhaps... Actually, they treat it like no one's in charge. I think we see ourselves as free agents. We're able to do whatever we want with our surroundings. We use them to do more and to buy more and to become more developed and become richer. It's true that some of that is planned. Some of that is strategic. But I'm wondering if for many of us, that thinking has kind of seeped into our subconscious our consumerist society, and actually too often our consumerist hearts, they convince us that we own everything. But we're used to feeling like that. We don't even think about it. We are led to think that all things are at our disposal because I'm in charge. And because I'm in charge, I'll be able to keep on living this way forever. We're used to politics and war and religion controlling who owns what land and which resources when actually it's just all gods. We focus our energy on buying and selling land and goods when all of those belong to God. And we draw oil and we mine substances as if they are endless, even though they are all gods. And we don't really care how much waste we produce as long as we can't see it even though the places that we're dumping that is still God's. The way we live, I think particularly in the West, is often at the expense of creation, at the expense of the environment, or at the expense of people, at the expense of the king's creation. The earth is the Lord's, that is true. The earth is the Lord's, and it's time that we started treating it that way. God is the king of creation because he made it. It belongs to him because by the work of his hands, he placed the stars in the sky. And by the work of his hands, he knitted us together in our mother's womb. He founded the earth on the seas, and he established it on the waters. God claims his rightful ownership. 
as the wonderful creator. Yet humanity receives this beautiful invitation, an invitation that is given by the king to share in his creation, to be blessed and be sustained and be provided for through creation's beauty and its abundance. That is one part of the invitation. But the other part of the invitation is to take responsibility for the care of the king's creation, to do that with him. That's what we see in Genesis as humanity is given a job to guard creation at the very, very beginning of the Bible. We're given a job to guard, to cultivate the earth and to love it as God does. We are temporarily entrusted with creation by the creator. It's a responsibility that is under the creator's rule. We are not at the top here. God is. We are stewards of the king's creation. Creation is not our own. Think about someone who you love loaning you something important to them to use or maybe leaving you to look after it for a little while. Maybe it's a house or a dog or a family heirloom or a really expensive gadget. Whatever it is, whatever you're picturing, it's in your care. You don't own it, but you love the person who does. So you do whatever you can to care for it. At the moment, my laptop is actually broken because um, I, don't, I don't actually treat it that well because it's my own. Um, so I'm borrowing Michael's, and boy, am I treating that laptop so well. Um, and that's kind of how I see it. I respect the person who owns it, so I look after that thing really, really well, better than I look after the thing when it's my own. You recognize that the item has value, the house or the dog or whatever, but really, 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 the value lies in your relationship with the actual owner. We need to remember who is king over creation. And so if you're a Christian here, creation is owned by the one that you love. If you follow God, creation is owned by the one that you love, by the God that you love. So how are you going to treat creation, which belongs to the God that you love? How does the love that you have for him impact what you do daily? I believe that there is a need for us to give the crown of creation back to God and together to treat creation in a way that reflects the heart of God, that reflects the way it was meant to be and reflects his kingship over it all. The next few verses, if you look at Psalm 24, it speaks of the king's presence. God's heart is for his presence to be among his people for the king's presence to be in his creation. He wants his presence to be known and experienced among people. He wants to have a relationship with them and with us in the creation that he made in his love and in his power. And that's how God created it to be. As we look back to creation, back to the Garden of Eden, we see that the king's presence was with his people in creation. That that is the intended state of the relationship between humanity and God. 
If you turn right back to the beginning of the Bible, you can read about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, dwelling with humanity, personally present with his beloved people in his beloved world. But the introduction of sin to the world as humanity turned from God and did their own thing and hurt themselves and hurt each other, that meant that his presence with his people in his creation had to change. People were kept at a distance from God, from his immediate presence in all its fullness and holiness because the holiness of God couldn't mix with the sin of humanity like oil and water. They just couldn't mix. Direct access to God was only um, given by, got by priests that were allowed once a year into the Holy of Holies. They had to undergo a long process of ritual washing and burnt sacrifices to purify themselves to be with God. To be in God's presence, they had to reflect the purity of God. And they had to prepare to enter that innermost part of the temple where God's presence dwells. David, the writer of our psalm, he knows that the holiness of God is unable to dwell in the brokenness of creation. So he questions who is able to come before God in his holy temple, on the holy mountain. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He asks. It's likely that David is speaking of the temple where the presence of the Lord dwelt, in the ark, in the holy of holies. He's asking, who is righteous? Who is righteous enough to be in the Lord's sanctuary? Who is good enough? There is a cleansing and a purity required for humanity to be able to be in the presence of God. Clean hands and a pure heart. That's what David writes. That's what you need to have to be in the presence of God. Clean hands and a pure heart. That's the way we live outwardly and the motives that we possess inwardly. But really, who has completely clean hands and a completely pure heart? Well, it's it's only Jesus It's only Jesus. Jesus has clean hands and a pure heart as a man without sin. He is the way by which we access the presence of God. He is the path that leads to our ability to dwell in the presence of the Father. Jesus is sent by his Father to be physically present in his creation, to be humanly present present in his creation. That's how much God loves what he made. He sends his son to be physically present within it. So the same God who created and established and reigns over everything is the same God whose presence we can be in through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ because he has clean hands and a pure heart and through him we can be in the presence of God. I believe that we can seek God's presence in creation, that he does dwell amongst his creation. So I wonder, in your life, where do you see his kingdom being built? Where do you see him working? 
Whose heart do you see God dwelling in? We can also seek to live with clean hands and a pure heart as we work to bring the kingdom here and to reflect the heart of God. We can seek to do that. But we also have to hold onto the knowledge that it is only through the forgiveness and the redemption of the cross that we are given clean hands and a pure heart. As the curtain in the temple, it tore in two as Jesus died on the cross. That meant God's presence was extended to all. It wasn't in one place that was kind of out of reach anymore. There is no separation, no distance, but instead a closeness and a clear path to the blessings of the Father. Just to be clear, it's not through our own works that we are made righteous and holy, but it's by Jesus' righteousness that we ascend that holy mountain and we stand in the holy place so that we can be in the presence of our Father, the King of creation, in his creation, the way it was always intended to be. And we experience that now. We can be in God's presence now through Jesus. But this life really is only a taster of what's to come for believers. It's only a taster because as we look to an eternity spent in the King's presence, in the new creation, right now, it was probably really, really tiny as we look to an eternity in his presence, in his new creation of a new heaven and a new earth as he returns in glory. And so for the last section, we are going to have a think about the king's return, about his return. As the beginning of the psalm does, these last verses, they also point to God as king, king of creation, but also as the king of glory in battle. And David points out that the king is returning. This psalm is thought to have been written to celebrate the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Jerusalem after over 20 years. That's the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God with his people. It was out of the city and now it's being returned. People aren't completely sure whether it was written at the exact time of the event or to commemorate it um, at a later date, but this song clearly rejoices over God's rule, and his reign, and his return as the ark, the presence of God with his people, is brought back to the city. These verses, they're thought to be um, a call and response for a community to take part in the declaration together. The command says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then it's met with the response, who is this king of glory? And then it gives the reply an opportunity to share in the greatness of the Lord and to declare that as a community. It's a beautiful image of the gates and the doors, those ancient things being lifted up because the presence of the king is returning. That the king of glory is so great that the head of the gates need to be way, way higher. 
the man-made structures that we often think display the wonder of our human intelligence and the development of society, they are nothing compared to the greatness of God, our King. It's the heavens that declare the glory of God. Our structures, they can't contain the enormity of his power and his might. There is beauty in what we make, but we can't contain it. The gates need to be higher. The doors need to be higher. Now, the gates and doors, they really would open outwards rather than be lifted up. So we do presume that there is some poetic license here that David is using where he summons the city of Jerusalem to welcome the king of glory by movement, by personification, I guess, of these ancient gates and doors. There's a sense that that it's been a while, that there's been waiting, anticipation, Perhaps that has turned to sadness as the presence of God has been away from the city. Perhaps it's turned to a lowerness, a a slumping, I guess. That's why the gates and the doors are being called to be lifted up. It kind of reminds me uh, of Beauty and the Beast, if I'm totally honest, when all those items in the castle have been waiting for a visitor, but they're kind of all a bit dusty and, and it's been like a hot minute. They're just waiting for a visitor. They're waiting for something they know will be great, but, but it's been a while. Hope begins to be lost. If you've seen the film, you'll know what I mean. But then Belle arrives. Belle arrives at the castle, and then there's a celebration, and so we are gifted the show-stopping performance of Be Our Guest. Just love it. But there's a change of atmosphere when Belle arrives. The items, they kind of, well, they come back to life. They're lifted up. They're joyful again. There's a change of atmosphere. But there's a complete transformation of the world as the king of glory enters in. When the ark arrives back in Jerusalem, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey, when he ascends to glory in heaven, and also as we look to Jesus' return to creation, to restore all things, to bring justice that we so need and to claim the earth as his own again, to reign as the king of creation. The gates and the doors waiting for the king of glory to enter in, um, they bear this similarity to the groans of creation that Paul talks about in Romans. The groans of creation. He also says that creation waits with eager longing. The king's return is awaited by all of creation. I'd agree that creation is waiting. I'd agree that it is groaning. And honestly, we've gone so wrong, I wonder if it's like screaming and crying by now. And we also think about our own hearts. As part of creation, are we groaning for the return of Jesus to restore all things? But we don't groan and then do nothing because, oh, Jesus is going to come back and sort it all out, so that's my job done. No, that's, that's not a mindset of a worshipper. That's not a mindset of someone who loves the creation 
of their God. Our worship is to express our adoration and our reverence for God in all we do. Yes, in song, as we've done this evening, but also in how we love others, how we use the voice that we have for justice, how we love creation, and how we seek to live with clean hands and pure hearts, even though we get it wrong and we get forgiven. But we try. We seek to live with clean hands and pure hearts, and we seek to be in the presence of God. Those groans of creation and the groans of our hearts, they push us to bring the kingdom of God here rather than making us stand still because we're thinking it's going to be all right. He's coming back and it is going to be all right. But it should push us to bring the kingdom of God here. It should move us. We want to see more of God and his heart for creation and for those who live in it. And we are the hands and feet of God. We can do that. We can love people and we can bring his kingdom here. We want to love his creation and all who are in it because it belongs to him, the one that we love and the one that loves us, the one that made it all in the first place. And as we work to love creation and to seek more of God in it, we can have hope in the king's return to creation whilst we love it as he does. In the ancient Jewish tradition, actually Psalm 24 was read on a Sunday morning. And for them, that was the first day of their new week. They'd had their Sabbath, and this is the first day of their new week. I wonder what our lives, our buying habits, our prayer lives, our daily routines, what would they look like if we took part in that ancient tradition too? If we started our week acknowledging God as king over all creation and everything and everyone in it, what would our weeks look like if we were seeking to be in his presence? What would our weeks look like if we started them celebrating the victory of what God has done and what he will do as he returns to his creation as the king of glory through his son, Jesus. God is king. That's what David wants you to know. That God is king. That he is king over creation. That he is present within it. That he wants us to step into that presence. And that he has and he will return to it in glory. As the king who is mighty and strong and victorious. Amen.